0: Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in 3, 2, 1. Well, actress Jennifer Lawrence, who is famous for her role in the Hunger Games films, have you seen the trilogy, right? Everybody's, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have, uh, older and younger. Well, she she's battled a long time, uh, as I was reading this interview, with anxiety, lots of insecurity. I mean, older people are insecure, right? But when you're younger, it's even, it's even worse. Uh, you you kind of don't know where you're going, what you're doing. A lot of times you would think that a big Hollywood star would, though. But in an interview about a year ago, she said this. She said, in middle school, there are all these peers judging you, and you're just never good enough, never wearing the right outfit, never saying the right thing. I want everyone to like me. Who doesn't? Then you grow up and become famous, and it's the same thing multiplied by a billion she saw herself on a television show recently, well, recently I should say, just before that interview she did, and she went into a full-fledged panic. She said this, she said, all of a sudden it was like being hit by a train, this realization of how many people are looking at me and how many opinions there are. In her worst moments, she said in this interview that she's pretty sure that at any moment her career is going to come crashing down. This is someone who's won at least one Academy Award, right? One or two? Something like that. I should have checked that out. But I, I mean, someone who really is at the top of that industry. And she's afraid that at any moment, it's all going to come crashing down. She said, people are going to get sick of me. I'm, I'm way too annoying. But if people want to start a backlash against me, I'm the captain of the team. As much as you hate me, I'm 10 steps ahead of you. She's putting herself out there hoping, maybe praying, that she'll be accepted. Certainly hoping that she'll be approved. And, and the thing is, when you look at that, you say, oh, you know, you, know, you don't say this poor kid because she's got a lot of money in the bank and she's, you know, beautiful and she's a star and everything else. But you kind of feel a little sorry for her. And, but when you start to do that, you say to yourself, I'm kind of like that. I don't think I'm that that far removed from where she is. We're not really that much different than her. She's right when she said that every one of us wants to be liked. But why do we want to be liked? We want to be liked because basically deep down we had this, this need for approval. We want people to say, you're fine, you're good come on in. And from the moment we become self-aware, little babies, you know, I don't know when that is, what what number month that is, when all of a sudden they realize they're not an appendage of their mother, but they're actually their own little child. From the moment we we come into that self-awareness, and the moment we understand that other people are out there, other awareness, we begin this mad search to accept ourselves and to be accepted by others. So as we look at Philippians chapter three. As we're marching through this book, life in HD, we want to answer a couple of questions: How do we seek approval? Why do we seek approval? Why do we never feel that we truly, truly have it? Where does it all lead? And how can I get the approval that really I've always been looking for? Well, let's begin over there in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul uses a very religious word, a religious sounding. You never use it in, in regular you know, language. You're not sitting around using the word righteousness with you know, friends at work, right? But Paul says, you know, uh, he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God through faith. So he uses this word, but whenever we hear that word, you know what? We normally people outside, and a lot, a lot of times us too, we're not thinking of it in a kind of, you know, religious sense. We're thinking, when we ever hear that word righteous or righteousness, we're thinking of good people who do good things. Don't you think about that? When you hear that word righteousness, it's like this person, I would consider that person a righteous dude. And you know why? Why? Because he, he does good things. She does good things. You know, obedient to parents, paying the bills on time, giving to your favorite charity, following the golden rule, and if you carry it into the religious environment, praying regularly, reading your Bible regularly every day, being there when the church doors open, when the offering plate comes you know, around, not just handing in you know, my name is kind of thing, but putting money in the offering plate, all those things. But when the Bible talks about righteousness, here's what it's talking about, and it's not an exact this equals this But you know what? Uh, It's pretty close. When the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about approval. It's talking about how we can be approved. Now, a resume is a list of how great, of things that tells everybody how great you are, right? It tells about the important people that you've worked for and you know, the companies you've worked for, all the vast experiences you've had in your life, each one more exciting than the last. Not really, because everybody lies in their resume, right? I mean, that's one place where almost everybody shades the truth, lies. If you worked one day for your boss, your boss said, you know, do this, and you've never done it before, it goes right on your resume. You could do it for two hours. Now it's, you're an expert in that field, right? And it goes right on your resume. Some people... Just outright lie in their resumes. It's happened very recently with some high-profile people, and then you know what happens. Uh, they're found out and have to apologize, and they're embarrassed, and you know, you know the whole thing. Now, a resume is very similar. I was thinking about it this week because I was talking to some kids who were starting to do college applications. My daughter's going to start doing some soon. It's very similar to a college application, right, a resume. In fact, your college application for many of you was probably your very first resume. It has a lot in common with a regular resume. What do they want to know with your college application? They want to know your academics. They want to know if you come up to the standard that so-and-so school says you should be up to. But they want to know everything else about you, too. They want you know, they pry You know, they probe, they want to see, you got to get the feeling, they want to figure out how they they can eliminate you sometimes when you look at some of the questions. They want to know about clubs and organizations that you were in in high school. They want to know about civic organizations that you served in. They want to know about all the awards you got. They want to know about the teams that you played on, the trips that you took overseas to broaden your horizon and to make you a fuller, rounder individual, as well as all the other interests that you might have. See, when I was looking at a resume, and I know resumes, and you look at college applications, uh, they're, they're kind of similar. They have a lot of things in common. Now, let me ask you something. What is the big purpose, the larger purpose? You always look at the larger purpose. What is the larger purpose of a resume and a college application? Here it is. Isn't it to get into a place that you're not presently in? You want to get in somewhere. So you use this thing, this resume, or this college application to help you get in. You're presently a senior in high school, but you want to be a freshman at Montclair State or at NJIT in the fall. What do you use? Well, you use the college application. You presently work for company A, company A that really doesn't understand how valuable you are to the company and how, many, you know, how great you are and how many gifts that you have. But you've heard about company B from some people that you know, and company B seems like the kind of place that you'd like to be. So what do you do? You send in your resume and you tell company B how great it would be for them to have you. You're an outsider, but you want to become an insider. You're out, but you want to go in. You'd like to get the chance, just one chance, to be an insider. Getting together a great resume, getting together a good college application is your first step. Now, one author pointed out uh, that, in a sense, we're always putting our resumes out. I'm not talking about the ones you put on paper or the ones you send through email. Uh, it's, it's, It's the one that's on your brain. It's the one that's in your heart. In our friendship, in our romantic relationships... Uh, we dress a certain way. We're familiar with certain music that we could talk about, certain local sports teams, politics, school boards happenings, TV shows, movies. We sort of dangle it in front of everybody that we meet. And we're hoping that, you know what, they take our resume and they say, you know what, I think, I think you pass. Come on, you know, Come on in. You, we're always being evaluated. People are always making evaluations about us. They're constantly looking us up and down. They're peering into our brains, into our backgrounds, and they're generally sizing us up ad nauseum. Isn't that true? You do the same thing. I mean, you do. We all do it. And if we want in to some place, which is a good thing, uh, we better be great. We want to be in because in is Good. It makes me feel good, and we have convinced ourselves that being in will give me what I have always wanted. So, if we want to be accepted, uh, we get our resumes out there for people to peruse. So, hopefully, we'll get into that social sphere, into their lives for the job, whatever. And you know, we're hoping that they're going to say, "This this woman is pretty impressive. We should let her in." This guy's really, this guy's really kind of smart. We could use guys like that on the inside. You're so talented. You're so gifted. Come on in. We want you in with us, right? You know, we do it with other people. But here's the thing. Think about it this week. We do it with ourselves, too. We do it with ourselves. Do you know that you have an unwritten resume in your brain and on your heart, an unwritten list of accomplishments Achievements, goals, ambitions that you're constantly measuring yourself up against. Constantly. We all do it. And as you look at your self-resume, you make judgments about yourself. And here's the dirty little secret. Most people never get close to realizing the bullet points on their resume, their self-resume. We never even get close. So what do you do? Well, you judge yourself. Sometimes we don't let ourselves in. I'm not even sure what that means, but I mean, uh, you kind of know what I mean? It's like, you know, we're judging ourselves and we will have nothing to do with ourselves because you know what? We don't think we're worthy to come in because we're, you know, our resume just, we never even get close to it. And what happens when that happens is that we, like a Hollywood starlet, ends up, we end up hating ourselves and we end up generally judging ourselves and being miserable people, right? That's what happens a lot of times. Now it plays out differently with different people. For as many people as there are sitting here, you got different things on your resume. Some of us have things in common, but they're not in the same order. They're almost never in the same order. Um, do you know what? How what's on the top of the list of the resume for a lot of moms? Yes, their children. You could say it. You, you understand. You know, it's it's not shameful. It's not a bad thing. Their children is on the top of the list. Their kids. So if. Moms, if your kids are doing reasonably well, if they're getting along at school, if they're starting on the high school team, if they're not taking drugs, if they're not getting their girlfriend pregnant, if they prop occasional remarks from your friends and from your parents, you know, remarks kind of like, you must be so proud of her. Or, you know what, this, this guy's going to go places. He's re- you know, I, wanna, I hope I'm around 10 years from now. And then you know what happens? You generally feel good about yourself because your resume is intact. It is. There it is. There's my resume. You know what? I'm following it. But if they drop out of school, if they move in with their boyfriend or girlfriend, if they end up in rehab, if in the fall they are entering into their third gap year after high school with no job and no future, you're devastated. You're a failure. You hate yourself. Do I exaggerate? Maybe it's not the kids. You know, for a lot of people, it's not the kids. For others, a lot of guys, I think, uh, it's the job. job's at the top of the list. If you're moving ahead, if you have a sense of achievement, doesn't mean you're president of the company, but something's happening, things are going along, Other things might be out of whack in your life, not perfect, you know, not crazy out of whack, but just out of whack, but it doesn't bother you that much, you could deal with it, because those things are kind of further down on the resume. The kids will be fine, it'll work out, but if the kids are struggling, your wife is hard pressed to think of anything else. And as much as she is glad that you're doing so well down at the company, you know what, She's really not that interested that, you know what, the third quarter sales were down. I mean, she's not laying awake looking at the ceiling at night because of that. She's just not. But for you, it's the prime determining factor as to whether you're going to come home in a good mood or a really bad mood, and everybody's going to pay, see? Your righteousness that Paul is talking about, your approval, it's what you boast in. It's what makes you able to look at yourself in the mirror your righteousness is what makes you able to receive criticism. And if you think that you're, you're kind of meeting the demands of the resume, you're able to say, well, you know what? I'm really a good person because I'm really getting this stuff done. But if your righteousness isn't up to snuff, if you feel you've messed up, if you feel you haven't come up to the standards, uh, you know what? When somebody criticizes you, you go home, you hate yourself because once again, you've fallen short of the resume. So what do you do? We shut ourselves out. You know, when the budget is down at the Crossing Church and there are empty seats, you know, in the auditorium, uh, I have to tell you, Marianne has never gotten seriously worked up about that. She really hasn't. I mean, it's not, you know, not that she's not supportive. She's just, you know, okay, well, whatever. But you know who gets worked up sometimes about that stuff? Uh, Let me think. Yeah, I do. I do. Often. Often. You know what, but when the kids or something's going on with the kids and she's kind of sitting in the corner fretting, I'm saying, they're they're smart, they'll figure it out, don't worry about it. See, we have different things on our resumes. We all have ways how we determine how we're going to make it in or not, whether we're approved or whether we're rejected. Now, in verse 2, Philippians chapter 3, we see that some folks had infiltrated the church in Philippi. Visiting missionaries, visiting teachers had shown up at the church. They had come from Jerusalem, and uh, they were Jewish, and they were telling these Gentile, largely, almost overwhelmingly Gentile Christian church, that uh, in order to be the best Christians possible, they needed to live a Jewish lifestyle. That's basically what they said when they came into town. They needed to keep the Old Testament laws. They needed to observe the Jewish holidays, the fast, the ritual washings. Basically, what they were saying was this. And this also happened in Galatia, by the way. But it also happened here in chapter 3 of Philippians. Now, remember what we said about Philippians. Paul loved this church. They were like his baby. I mean, if you read through, there's so much passion for this church for a lot of reasons. Maybe reasons we don't even know. But one of the reasons was because in their poverty they had given to him they had, you know they looked at their wallets there was a dollar left they gave it to Paul and there's something about that that just touches your brain and your heart, doesn't it? I mean, it just does. But he loved them, and these same people from Jerusalem showed up at Philippi, and basically they were saying, guys, you know what? It's really wonderful that, you know, you're Gentiles. And, you know, there was a time that we really didn't think that you should be part of the church, but, you know, God enlightened us, you know, Peter. He had this vision and acts and the whole deal going on there, and we get it, and we were wrong, and we repented of that. Welcome to the church. We just wanted you to know that we, the Jewish Christians, who were there before you, by the way. You know, we, we welcome you into the church. But guys, i got to tell you something right now. If you really, really want to please God, you also got to follow the ancient guidelines that God gave his people in the Old Testament. For instance, guys, you need to keep the dietary laws. We understand that you're not doing that. We, we still the pork over there. We're not sure you should, you know, you get that out of your house. You should observe the special days on the religious calendar. And most of all, you need to make sure that your males are circumcised as a symbol that they're really, really committed. We Christians in the mother church at Jerusalem are keeping the laws. And we feel that you should keep the law too. We all serve Christ. We all are saved by grace. But we feel that you're kind of missing out on a whole section of what we're supposed to be doing and if you want to be approved in your spiritual life if you want to be in then you'll do these things too so these visiting teachers and ministers were trying to impose their jewish lifestyle on the gentiles at philippi and the Gentiles in Philippi, who thought they were doing okay. You know, not perfect. They understood it. They get it. But they were progressing. They felt approved by God in Christ. All of a sudden, they were feeling like, wait a minute. We're doing all these things wrong? They felt like they were failures. So when Paul heard about this, this usually kind, patient, genteel apostle He took off the gloves and he started to pound on them with bare knuckles. In verse 2, he says this. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Those are pretty strong words, you know, very, very strong words. He said, don't listen to them. When they come in your door, when they start spouting this stuff, close the door in their face. Close it. He said, because you know what? Your personal resume counts for nothing. Then Paul goes on, and after having said that, he tries to prove his point. And how does he prove his point? He, in effect, takes out an old, dusty resume that he had you know, in a, in a folder that he's holding in his hands. And he says, you want to talk about resumes? All right, let's talk about resumes. I'd, I'd be happy to talk about resumes. They're talking about resumes. Let's talk about resumes. And he pulls this out, and it says in verse 3, verse 3 is his resume, if Paul had a resume, it's in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 3. It says this. is a circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This kind guy of started, his resume started off before he was born. <laughs> his parents took it out, they put it in the typewriter, and they just, you know, Paul of Tarsus, and they started typing before he was even born. It says that he had been circumcised when he was eight days old. He wasn't circumcised at age 12 like the Ishmaelites were. He wasn't even circumcised as a proselyte who, as a, an adult male, would come to faith in the Jewish Messiah uh, that, that was to come, and in the Jewish law and all those kind of regulations and things, and he was circumcised as an adult, as a grown man. He stresses the fact that he had been born into the Jewish faith, into it, and and had known all about his privileges and observed its ceremonies from, he was eight days old, eight days old. His parents said, you know, you're going to have a great resume. He was a member, he says, of the people of Israel. Now, when Jews wanted to stress their special relationship to God, in its most unique sense, they used the word Israelite. Whenever you see that, that's, that means they're trying to stress their descent, their absolute purity. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a very, very special tribe. Very special tribe Benjamin was. The first king came from Benjamin. These guys were known as great fighters, great warriors. Uh, when, when the kingdom split on the Rehoboam, and ten tribes remained north in apostasy, and two tribes in the south remained loyal to Jehovah God, There were only two loyal tribes, folks. Judah, and guess who else? Benjamin. Benjamin. So they had a great, amazing history. In a sense, when you said you were from Benjamin, you were from the aristocracy of the 12 tribes. Benjamin was the aristocracy. It would be equivalent... If you were from Benjamin, it would be equivalent to this. It would be equivalent to saying, you can directly trace your lineage back to the Mayflower. You know what? That would be pretty impressive. See... His was an advantaged birth by every way that you could add it up. His resume was getting longer and longer. So then from birth, Paul was saying that he was this law-observing, human-approval-accumulating Jewish man. But it didn't stop at birth. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, Jewish people uh, by this time were all over the ancient world. They had just been scattered all over. Uh, but most Jews, if you look at history, they stubbornly refused to assimilate with the cultures around them. They did to a certain degree, but not, you know, not fully. They were always looked at as strange, and they lived in ghettos, and basically, you know what, they didn't mix really well. But what, what would happen in the ancient world is to just because of commerce, because of business, because of just living every day... They, they picked up the Greek language. And in time, a lot of Jewish people forgot how to speak Hebrew. And basically, when you said you were a Hebrew of Hebrews, it means that, you know what? No matter how far you know, I, I go in this land, no matter what town or country or village I live in, he's saying, you know what? There are a few people, just a few, who have retained the mother tongue of Hebrew. I am one of them. I have never lost that. I speak fluent Hebrew. Paul was saying that. As the law went, he said, on top of all that, he was a Pharisee. He was numbered among this never more than 6,000, group of 6,000 men, who basically were the spiritual athletes of the day. Men who had put aside many of the things that other folks thought was a right and a privilege, you know, or, or a privilege, or they just put him aside just to follow the law because it took so much time, it took so much effort. And, and these guys were, were just these amazing separated ones because that's what Pharisee means. It means the separated ones. They cut themselves off from common life so that they could follow the law in every detail. And then he says he was zealous. He was zealous... So zealous that he was a literal, in fact, the most ferocious persecutor of the early church. Remember the first? Do you remember the first martyr in the book of Acts? Who was the first martyr in Christian history? Stephen. And do you remember? It was a little. It's just a little tiny phrase. Little, little phrase in Acts. I think. I think it's Acts eight. Acts eight, beginning of verse nine. Uh, Acts nine. It says, and and they laid their coats when they stoned Stephen to death. They laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul this guy. See, Saul orchestrated the first Christian murder. First martyr was Stephen. And, uh, you know, his death is due to that guy standing over there watching the coats. Okay. That's how zealous he was. Went from city to city to track people down, to bring them to trial. And then last but not least, talking about his resume here, don't forget. Last but not least, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, uh, faultless. In other words, he was following the law, and as far as he knew, he was doing everything he had to do. He didn't know what else to do. He was doing it as best he could. And yet, even with a resume that was the envy of the ancient world, the Apostle Paul was a miserable man. Miserable. He had an impeccable resume, and yet he was constantly on this endless search to beef up his resume. To add more lines to his resume. And to make sure everybody knew what he was doing. No matter how closely you know, he got to fulfilling those bullet points, he wanted to beef them up. And folks, i got to tell you, it's the same way with us. No matter how closely we get to fulfilling the bullet points on our own personal resume, it's never, ever going to be enough. And listen, it'll never make our hearts sing. See? Resumes never make your hearts sing. It is, they are never the basis of joy. Never. It wasn't for Paul. And Paul, if you would talk to Paul in the middle of this, I'm sure Paul would say that one day he trusted that his resume, living up to his resume as best he could uh, and other external standards, that he would not only be approved by his resume, but he fully expected to be approved by God. And, and one day be let in to the very presence of Almighty God. But he was about to find out something. He was about to find out that his personal resume counted for nothing. It absolutely counted for nothing. And it certainly never brought the joy that he was always looking for. Because what he didn't understand at that point was that joy comes when we decide to not live up to any standards, whether it's their standards or my standards, to be approved by God, but only God's standards. See, that's the only standard that really mattered. Paul didn't understand that yet. He was still learning. So he's in this resume beefing up part of his life, and then he comes to verse 7. And I guess verse 7, I like to call verse 7 the great reversal the great reversal in verse 7, and he says this. He says, now remember the Damascus road experience where Paul was literally knocked off his horse? That's the great reversal time, and then he's able to write this after that. After many years, he writes this. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. You know, not desperately trying to be approved by others and myself by waving my resume filled with accomplishments met and standards achieved, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What was he saying? Well, he was saying this. He was saying, my personal resume counts for nothing. Christ's resume counts for everything. His personal resume is everything. Paul actually says, they are the, he calls it the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth, he calls it. Those things that used to be so important to me, but something else has come to my attention, that phrase means. Something was was very important, very worthy, was always getting my attention, but now something else has come on the scene. That's what that word means. The word surpassing worth in the Greek is literally, it means a super thing. A super thing. Paul says, I have found the super thing. I have found something so brilliant that the things that used to control me, the things that used to flood my brain and my mind, that I worked so f- that I killed myself to achieve and maintain, now mean nothing to me. Folks, you talk about a conversion. To his whole life was geared in this direction. Now, all of a sudden, something of surpassing worth reveals itself and Paul does a 180 and he's going in completely the opposite direction. All the years, all the preparation, all the work of his parents, all the study, all the teaching, everything, all of a sudden he found this pearl of great worth. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like in the New Testament. The guy's a pearl collector and he's out digging one day and he finds his, you know, he finds his other pearl. He will sell everything for the one pro. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. What the Apostle Paul was saying was, you know what? My three postgraduate degrees, two from Ivy League schools, the fact that my grandfather was the personal chaplain of the President of the United States, the fact that my parents brought me to church from the time I was a fetus, that I could quote the Gospel of John word for word in the original Greek, that I've picketed and been arrested in front of a number of abortion clinics, that I have the Ten Commandments on my screensaver at work, he said, it's all crap. Now, I use that word, crap, and I have to tell you right now, I'm cleaning it up. I'm cleaning it up from the original language. Because the word that Paul uses when he talks about his resume, the word literally means... Feces. It's translated garbage in the NIV because they're nice guys. I knew, I had one professor, two of the professors who did the NIV. I knew them. They were in my seminary. Very genteel, very nice guys. And, you know, they're not going to put, you know, the, the, the real word in there. What Paul said was, I thought I was gaining approval. I thought that I was in. But you know what? I was really kidding myself. Instead of filling my life with righteousness, with these behaviors that I had done my whole life, I was filling it with feces. And feces has no capacity to bring anybody joy. Now, what was the thing that led this great, studious, temperate scholar to resort to potty language? What's going on here? What could this thing be that would lead this person in a whole nother direction? So that he says, these things, they mean nothing to me anymore. This whole resume means nothing. It's it's when he says this. Look, he says, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of, of faith. See, if you could earn approval through a killer resume, you know how the killerest resume of anybody, the Apostle Paul did. Paul said, "You may think that you're gaining, but you're losing. You're building up your resume. You know, you want to keep it up. That's that's up to you. But you're not gaining anything. You're losing everything. Instead of these things making you righteous." You're filling your life with garbage and the NIV. Here's the real deal. I gotta tell you this very openly, pointedly, honestly. Our resume is the very thing that keeps us from God. It is the very thing that can often and does often keep us from God. We need to repent of sin. We, we all know that. You've heard that a thousand times, right? I've said it. We need to repent of our sin. Folks, i got to tell you something. Uh, what we really need to repent of, you know what we need to really repent of? Our resumes. We need to repent of our resumes. You know, many times we say, repent of our sins, but what we really, at the core, it's the sin that holds up all the other sins. It's the core of our sins, our resumes. We need to repent of our resumes. We need to repent of the way we've been going about seeking approval, which never, ever brings joy. But here's what it does bring, frustration and headaches. That's what it brings. We need to repent of that. He said, I counted all these wonderful things a loss for the sake of Christ Jesus my Lord. That means, you know what the Apostle Paul had to do? The Apostle Paul had to completely reorient the way he looked at his good deeds. Completely reoriented. He had to think differently about his credentials, about his accomplishments. That's what finally made him a Christian. That was the key. That was the step. Paul says, you know, here you're, you're not a Christian until, in Philippians chapter 3, until you've changed the way you look at everything, the way you look at yourself. The way, you know, you look at your resume. He says, all of the things I looked at this way, I now look at in a completely different way. I look at it with completely different eyes. Folks, what makes you a Christian is not that you have accumulated a wonderful resume of good things. What makes you a Christian is that you have repented of your righteousness. That's what Paul was saying. Of all the lame ways that you have tried to get approval. And listen, the minute you become a Christian... The minute you become a Christian, I know this has happened. You say to yourself, I realize the one bullet point, the only one, one bullet point I need on my resume, there's only one, is this that Jesus Christ died for my sins. He owes me nothing because I've tried to live a good life. That hasn't worked out too well. Okay? Keep falling, keep depressed, anger, hatred, deep in my heart. I know I can't do it. I've never felt as if I was totally approved by others, by myself, certainly not God. Now, I only want to repent. Not only want to repent of my sins, but I want to repent of my resume. I want to repent of my righteousness as well. See, if you're a Christian, I know you've said that. I know you've come to that understanding and that realization. Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. If you ever study it, I've studied it so many times. It's, it's the greatest sermon. It's got it all, I've got to tell you. He spoke about God's approval. It's what, it's what the entire sermon was about. The entire Sermon on the Mount is about God's approval. It's about righteousness. And the key verse in the entire sermon, look at the fuller version in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The, if you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I don't care how long you study it, you're going to come back to one verse. One verse alone. It's Matthew 5, verse 20. In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus said this. He said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people that are listening to him that day, they're listening to that, and they're going, you've got to forgive me. Re- is, is he serious? You mean to tell me it's not enough to follow the 248 commands, the 365 prohibitions, the 1,521 further instructions that the religious leaders, our leaders have determined are required to be approved of by God? I want to tell you something, the news couldn't have been worse. People sitting there going, you're saying, oh, that's yeah, it's great. No, they're not. They're sitting there going, you must be joking, man. In other words, I'm not a, I, I know I'm not as good as the Pharisees. That I have to be better than the Pharisees or I'm lost. And basically Jesus says, yeah, you do. See, but that's the beginning of the good news. When you come and you understand that and you say, you know what, I have no hope. I have no chance. That's the right answer. There is no hope of approval by trying to gain it on our own. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, those who could never have ever gained approval now will never lose it. You will never, ever lose it. While we repent of trying to save ourselves and instead trust wholly and fully in Jesus Christ, who was our sacrifice, whose work was totally approved of by the Father. The Father looked at the work of Jesus Christ and he said, this is fine, this is enough, nothing else has to be done and it never has to be done again. See, that's our approval. That's how we gain the approval of God. That's how we lose the feeling of frustration and never being able to do enough and never being in. That's how we lose the self-hatred and the disappointment will finally and forever begin to fade when we realize, we sang about it, how much we are loved. How much we are loved and valued by God that he would send his son to make you righteous, to make you approved forever and ever in his sight. That's why we preach the love of God. We have to keep singing it. We have to keep saying it. We have to help people understand about it. Jesus Christ came so that you can be approved by God, and you never need another thing in your resume. When you pull out your resume, and you, you stand at the pearly gates, and they, and they look at your resume, and they say, well, let's take a look at this now. You know what? What, what needs to say on this? Sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. That's all we need. And you know what will happen? The entranceway is blown open for anyone. If this is your real righteousness, if you, Paul says if you put this on, if you delight in being found in him, there is nothing and no one who will ever pull the rug out on you. Never for the rest of your life. You're never going to fall down in the dust and never get up again. That's why Paul could say, and he starts off this section. We didn't even look at it, but he starts off this section by saying this. Finally, my brothers, what? Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. This whole book is about rejoicing. A man who's in prison, a man who has the prospects probably of being executed as far as everyone else is concerned, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. Joy comes when we live up to God's standard, one standard, not anyone else's, not even our own. You know what David said in Psalm 37? Let me close with this. David said in Psalm 37, my feet stumbled, but I didn't fall. My feet stumbled, but I didn't fall. You know what? We, we, we stumble a lot, don't we? We have a saying around the crossing, don't we? What is it? Stumbling in the right direction. We, we do stumble. And we grieve, and our hearts hurt, and we're disappointed, and people disappoint us. But what i got to tell you, when that happens, if the guilt starts to come at us, if the disappointment starts to overwhelm, uh, y- our, your conscience you know, may even say to you, you know, close the door on yourself. It's all over. It's all over. Close the door on yourself. You know, w- what do you do? You, you say to yourself, you know, I, I did something really bad. I did something really wrong. But I do not presume to stand in the presence of God another moment on my own. I I, I am not going to stand in my own righteousness. I'm not going to stand trying to approve myself. I'm not going to stand with a resume in hand and say, you know what? Uh, Okay, you know what? I know I did bad, but look at this resume. I'm never going to do that again. What I did last night was very bad. But if I hadn't done it, folks, that wouldn't have made any difference in God's mind When he looks at you, it wouldn't have made a difference as we stand as far as a worthy individual because of Jesus Christ in his presence. What makes me worthy, what makes you worthy of God's presence is the righteousness of my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's message was in the first nine verses of chapter 3. In him I am approved. In fact, the very fact that you sinned this week the very fact that you may have sinned last night shows the grandeur and the greatness of the righteousness of Christ, doesn't it? We desperately, desperately want to be in. But I gotta tell you something right now. Christian, Christian, through Christ, you already are. You are. Joy comes when we live up to God's standards, not anyone else's, not even our own. See, when we do that, when we hold up the resume that says, you know, saved by grace, saved by grace, life begins to come into focus. It begins to become sharper. It's life in HD. And God's standards are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we have him, when we've met that standard of faith in him, and him alone, we are approved now and forever by Almighty God.